you have your Bibles, please open to the book of James. Um, we, last week, um, we had the, a good night, of course, um, part of the, part of the emotional part of last week was finishing up Romans. And um, tonight we're starting a new series in James, and uh, we are going to begin in the first four verses there. If you don't have your own Bible, please feel free to use the Pew Bible in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 1011. As you turn there, I've, it's been kind of funny to me, I've, I've told a few people this week what we're doing, and uh, they've kind of laughed that... You know, we've, we've been spending a year and a half or so uh, talking about grace, and now you're going to be telling us uh, not so much about grace anymore, all the work that we got to do. Um, so uh, we're hoping to see some work out of you now as we start uh, the beginning of James. Well, joking aside, it is, uh, it is a great privilege to uh, look at this letter, and we will uh, see and consider some of the differences between James and uh, Romans, of course, uh, but I will tell you that the two are not in conflict, that this is all a part of God's Word, meant for us uh, to know God, uh, to, to grow in Christ, uh, to, to know Him better. So with that, let's look at the first four verses of the book of James. Hear now the word of our Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As far as the reading of God's holy word, would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your living word. I pray that you would be at work tonight in our hearts to see you more clearly and even to see ourselves more clearly, and that we would grow in our faith, that perhaps, Lord, you may call some to faith in Christ. We look to you, Holy Spirit, to help, to lead, and to teach, and to lead us to worship, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are familiar at all with the book of James, you are probably familiar with uh, the, uh, the, the contrast that James has with the Apostle Paul, particularly in a letter like Romans that we just finished. Because James is a book that speaks quite a bit about works, whereas Romans speaks quite a bit about grace. I think I even tried to make the point. If perhaps you could sum up the the book of Romans in one word, perhaps you could use the word grace. And you might say, well, now we're looking at a book that perhaps you could use the word works. How do the two come together? Do they belong to each other? In fact, this contrast between Romans and James is is a contrast that's caused quite a bit of indigestion among uh, scholars over the years. You probably, or maybe you haven't, but perhaps have heard about Martin Luther, how much he did not like this book. He described his displeasure with this little letter by calling it a book of straw. In his words, he says, 
James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to Paul's letters. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That's what Luther said. It has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. But is that true? Is it true that James has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it? You may want to ask Martin Luther, well then, why would you keep James in your German translation of the Bible if you didn't like it so much? Well, ultimately, he did believe that it was God's word. And actually, as we work through this letter, of course, we are going to see works at play throughout this letter. But I think also we're going to see the gospel at work here. Perhaps it'll be in a different light, but it's still the same gospel of Jesus Christ. The question, though, is is where does the gospel of Jesus Christ lead you? And I think on a very practical, sort of down-to-earth level, that's what's the question of this letter. Where does the gospel of Jesus Christ lead you? That's the underlying question here. Well, with that, I want us to get into this book first by asking a couple of basic questions to get us introduced to the book, and then we'll look at uh, what I think this book is primarily about. And so with that, I want us to consider, first of all, who is writing this letter? Secondly, to whom the author is writing this letter? And then finally, we'll see why he is writing this letter. Who is writing it? Who is he writing it to and why? Well, verse 1, first of all, tells us that the author of this letter is James. Is James. Some of you may recognize that in the New Testament there are more than one prominent figures named James. And you might wonder which James this might be because it doesn't include his last name here. So you might wonder which James do we have? Well, if you think about the Apostle James, uh, he was martyred in Acts 12. So it's unlikely that this is the author since this James died so early on. And then there's another James. He's known as the son of Alphaeus, but he is also not quite so important to the life of the early church. And so it's unlikely him. Which leads us with the third option, which most people agree is the author of this letter. And I think it's right to see this as the author of the letter, as James, the brother of Jesus. If you knew that Jesus had a brother, but he has actually more than one. In Matthew 13, there are people who are questioning Jesus, wondering where does he get all of his wisdom? And they're sort of mocking him and they ask, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And he speaks of sisters right after that. So Jesus had some brothers and sisters around him and one of his brothers was named James. So we have James, the brother of Jesus. This also seems to be the James who was the first elected moderator of the first ever General Assembly in Acts chapter 15. You didn't know he was a Presbyterian. Well, he was a man at least of considerable reputation 
and influence in the early church, someone that many people would have looked up to as an authority figure in the early church. And so this is who we have, who is the author of this letter. And I think it's important, just it may seem like a minor note here, why this is such a big deal, but, but actually I, I think for those who would criticize the letter of James and saying there's no gospel about it, I think you ought to pause. Because I, I don't know about you, but I know how brothers are. I have a brother. I have two sons, so they are brothers to one another. And in my own experience, in the experience of watching my children, I would never expect one brother to say of any other brother what this man says about Jesus Christ. Even brothers who have a great relationship. You would never expect one man to say of his brother that I am his slave. That I am his slave. That's exactly what James says in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant has the force, that idea of being a slave, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Note, he doesn't introduce himself as the moderator of the first general assembly or the moderator of the Jerusalem Presbytery. Nor does he uh, introduce himself as Jesus' brother. As if he's name-dropping. This is why you want to listen to me. But here we have this man of, of influence and importance. And even a, a brother of Jesus Christ who would have known him from childhood. Saying, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, really, think about it. What would it take for a man to look at his brother and say, my heart, my soul, my life belongs to him. That I will bow the knee to him. He is he's not just a, a brother I admire and respect. He is my master. And I will obey him. I will serve him with my life and my heart. And you think about that relationship, you might think if there's anyone in the world who would reject the lordship of Jesus Christ, it might be James. And yet here he is saying, I bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. No one wants to be a slave, much less a slave to your brother. What happened? We know what happened. In the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit entered into the heart of James and gave him a new heart with new eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus was not merely his brother, but the Christ, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. That's how James sees Jesus. And so whatever you think about the numerous commands that we're going to go through in the book of James in this series on Sunday evening, you need to know that they are coming from a heart that has been miraculously transformed by the tender mercy and grace of God. James knows what it is to be made 
a whole new creation in Christ, where the old is gone and the new has come. James, a man saved by grace, servant, slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question now is, who is he writing to? Verse 1 goes on to say that James is writing this letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. It's basically a shorthand uh, to speak of the Jewish believers who have been scattered throughout the Greek world. And I, I think, like knowing who the author is, is of interest to us, that this little detail is of interest to us as well. In fact, I think it's important for us because we know on some level what this means. We know what it's like to be scattered in a godless world. Perhaps you know what it's like to be the only Christian in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your dorm room. Yes, we come together on Sundays. Isn't it such an oasis for all of us? It's an oasis because when we leave and we go into the, the world, it's, it's a desert out there. Hostile, hostile against God. You live in a strange land that doesn't recognize God. Not really. And they don't fully understand why you do what you do. You live in a world that doesn't understand why you think the way you think. Why would you be honest with your finances? Or why would you show kindness and mercy to people that no one else will? This is a letter that's written to believers. Written to believers who need guidance in how to live in a godless world. Believers who are enduring trials, difficulties because of this very situation. Because they're believers in Christ living out, scattered across a godless world. And so he teaches us what the grace of God enables us to do. Day by day living. How do we live? How are we to act? What honors God? What doesn't honor God? And so James is getting to that. And I believe that this is one of the reasons why it's an important book for us today. Because we know what it's like to be a Christian people scattered throughout the week, in a godless land. So that's who he's writing to. Which brings us to our final question, and the primary focus of our sermon will be on this. But So then what is this letter about? What does James, the slave of Jesus Christ, brother of Christ, want the believers scattered into the dark world, what does he want them to know? Why is he writing them this letter? And I think we see the main idea, actually, of the whole book of James here in verse 3. It says, speaks of the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. I think this is the main idea here in the letter of James. Now, what does that mean, first of all? The testing of your faith. When James says this, he's speaking, uh, kind of behind the language here, he's speaking about uh, the idea of 
a, a person's faith being refined, a person's faith being sharpened. The Apostle Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he speaks of faith being tested like gold, being put into a fire. And the result of that is that it produces something that's more pure, something that is better, something that is refined. As if you have a, a faith that is kind of rough and ready, it's, it's there, it's faith, but, but it, it, it can be re- refined, it can be made even better, it can be strengthened. And so, this is what James is teaching us here. And I think that this is his concern. The concern being that God's people be a people who are sanctified. That God's people be a people who are made holy. That is the desire here. That is the concern of God as we see in this book and as we'll see in our verses this morning. Or this evening, whatever time it is. So when we have this mind in mind, we look at uh, verse two and we we see this command: "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." You can do that if you know that this is what James is writing about. You can read that verse without ripping James out of your Bible. What do you mean, trials of various kinds? You want me to meet that with joy? I mean, who in here likes to go through trials? I know I don't. No one looks forward to going through trials. Think of trials. It's not merely a test to show, you know, how high you can jump, how far you can run. But, but I think he's meaning hardships. Persecution. Suffering. I don't want that. Do you? And James says, count it joy. Again, remember, this is a man himself who's been completely transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he's speaking to us in a loving manner. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. He doesn't say you knuckleheads. My brothers. There's an earnestness calling upon you. I know that you're suffering. I know that it's hard. I know that you feel alone, and I know you don't understand, but my brothers, count it joy. I say, well, thanks, James. But how do I do that? How do I count, count it joy when I suffer trials? What enables God's people to have joy in times of trials and sufferings? Well, I think there are three things in our passage here that show how a believer can count his or her sufferings uh, a joy. The first is trials produce steadfastness. You see, this truth is going to help us in our times of trials and difficulty. Uh, This idea that it produces something. And what it produces is steadfastness. Or you might have the word perseverance here. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds... For you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says, you know this. You know that the result of your trials is steadfastness, is perseverance. Remember this. Now you might want to think of, as an illustration, someone who might want to run a marathon. I've never done it and I never plan to. 
But I've been told, and I have no difficulty in believing that when uh, most runners, when they're running a marathon, that there comes points, even if you've trained well, there come points in the marathon where you are ready to quit. I've even heard it's something around mile 20 is when you really hit a wall. You're almost there. But you hit a wall and you're, you're, you're almost done. You're exhausted and you have pain and there's a mental block and you have to have the mental fortitude to keep going, to press through because you know the finish line is up there. I'm going to press on. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do what I need one foot after the other to make it to the finish line. I think that is a helpful analogy to consider what steadfastness is here. See, steadfastness is not merely being stoic in the midst of a hard time. You know, the, the Greek stoics were this kind of, uh, this idea where you just sort of have a stiff upper lip no matter what. You just kind of pretend like nothing really bothers you. Yes, life is terrible, but I'm just not going to let it bother me and I'm going to endure. No, there's this picture of an end goal here. Like the runner who, who sees the finish line and I'm going to keep going. My body's about to break down, but I'm going to keep going. And it's the finish line, the, the goal, the end goal that enables people to persevere, to keep going to the end. To be steadfast in the heat of trials and troubles. Think of all sorts of people, and perhaps this describes you on some level, who are celebrated for starting really well but never finishing. Famously, I think of Leonardo da Vinci from the time of the Renaissance. What a famous figure who was well known for starting these marvelous projects, paintings, sculptures, engineering projects, but he almost never finished any of them. He was a man of great vision and enthusiasm, but he could never quite get through the end of his project. But here what we're going to see and what we see in these verses is that God's concern is not so much how you start. He's not so concerned with how you start. But it's about bringing you to the finish line. God is concerned about bringing you to the finish line. And he says, I'm putting you through these trials so that you will endure, so that you will keep your eyes on the finish line and keep going. We need steadfastness in our faith and our heart to keep going. So God, test your faith to produce the fruit of perseverance. And we need to remember that. You know this is true and we need to remember that. Secondly, we see that the testing of your faith is also the way forward in the Christian life. It is not an obstacle to your growth. The testing of your faith is the way forward in your Christian life. It is not an obstacle to your growth. And you hear that, and this is just seems counterintuitive to us. I mean, typically we think everything was going so well, everything was falling into place, and then all of a sudden something terrible happened, and everything fell apart, and now life is hard and miserable, and there are days I just want to quit. I wish... There were no problems, and everything fit the way it's supposed to. But James is teaching us that in these verses, that your trials of various kinds are seasons of growth. 
Not, not obstacles for your growth, but it's the way in which you grow. These seasons are opportunities to grow and move forward. This is true of all kinds of trials, whether it's problems at work or difficulties within your family. I've had some people in our church who have experienced personal loss recently. And so I speak with sympathy and, and not flippantly, but we need to know and be reminded that God is at work even in the most difficult times. That he uses these times to mature your Christian character and to, to deepen your knowledge and understanding of God. I mean, we, we may look at the, the trials, the troubles, and hardships of our life, and it just seems like a complete mystery to us. We have no answers to the question, what, what happened? Why is this happening? I've been in the position as a pastor who I've visited people in the midst of unexpected and, and difficult moments, and I've been asked, Ben, you're the pastor here. Tell me why this is happening. The truth is, I don't really know. I don't really know. But I know that God knows. More than that, I know that God not only knows why seemingly and apparent random things happen to his people, that God actually uses those things to mold and, and, and to hammer away at your heart and your life to make you more like Christ. He is using these moments, he is using these seasons to make you more like Christ. The Son of God Himself. Remember, God's not quite so interested in how you started. He's interested in the finish line. He's interested in who you will become. You see that in verse 4. That God works these trials in the believer's life to make you perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Our obsession tends to be with the moments that we're going through, this very moment that I'm in now, and, and much less so what I am becoming or who I am becoming. But you see, in all that we go through, God is, is making us, preparing us to be ready to be with Him in eternity. He's preparing us to be ready to be with Him in eternity. You see some signs at churches that will say, you know, come as you are. At Sovereign Grace, we believe that too. Yeah, come as you are. But I'll also say our expectation is that you won't stay as you are. That you come to know and hear, that you come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will come to know him and believe in him. That you become a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. And then as that happens, as you get to know the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, then you will begin to grow and become more and more like Him. And the interests of your old life, go they fade away. That you become more like Jesus throughout the rest of your life. That's our expectation. Come as you are, but we expect and pray. She changed to be more like Christ. And so we need to remember that our trials are 
tools in God's hands to make you more like Christ, to sanctify you, to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember, when I was a teenager, perhaps you have this experience when you're a teenager, you don't always have the most sophisticated cars. Uh, I was driving my car to school one day, and uh, it quit working, and eventually was able to get it to the mechanic, and I leave it there, and I come back to the mechanic, and I'm, I'm looking at the work that he's done, because it's a long project for him, and I come and see my, the chair and my, the, the driver's seat is no longer in my car, and there are other parts of my car that are no longer where they're supposed to be, and I look at that, and I think, I'm never going to drive this car again, am I? This car is toast. There's parts all over the place. So I asked the mechanic, will I ever drive this car again? And he just looked at me and said, I know what I'm doing. Now you may be in a season in your life where you have no idea why you're going through what you're going through. You have no idea why all of this is happening and it's hard and you just feel like I'm under this blanket of darkness and I don't understand any of it. You may feel like your life has been taken apart and is scattered on the ground in front of you in all different pieces and say, will I ever live again? God is able to look at you and say, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. So we can count it all joy when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds. Not because you always grasp why this is happening. But I can trust. God is God. I've known what he's done in my heart. To take someone who's a, a brother and say, no, I'm not a brother, I'm a slave of Christ. I know what it's like to, to be a sinner who's been welcomed into the household of God. To have Jesus as my elder brother who's not ashamed of me. I know what it's like to be a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. And I may not understand what's happening today, but I know that God knows. And I trust God to be God. And I may not like it right now, but I, I can know that he is using these trials to produce steadfastness so that I may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Which brings us to our third point here, that the true Christian maturity comes through trials. In verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what is the attitude that James is calling us to here? It's not an attitude of despair or hatred, despising our troubles. And I also don't think that we merely need to be joyful or just try to pretend like we have joy when life hurts. I think in order to count our various trials a joy, we need to 
come to a place where we wholly and completely submit ourselves into the hands of God in our days of hardship and suffering, our lack of understanding, our difficulty, and our sorrow. We need to trust God when we're the only one, when you're the only one at work and people are mocking you because you go to church and you read your Bible. We need to trust God uh, not only that he has a plan, but he's going to work that plan out to its full effect. You know, there's discussions about church growth, about how, how do churches grow. And you know, to be fair, we, we do pray for that. We, one of our favorite hymns in this church, I think, is one where we pray in the hymn that the, the churches be full. We desire that, of course. We don't want any empty pews. And so we share the gospel. We send missionaries so that more would come to know the person of Jesus Christ and be brought into his kingdom. But there's another kind of growth that we need to be sure not to neglect. And that is the growth of our faith. The growth of the depth of our hearts. God is concerned that not only are you converted, but that you grow in maturity. And that his word, which is living and active, will be driven deep into your soul. So that all areas of your life, your mind, your works, your heart will be shaped more and more into the image of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. I don't know anyone who wants to go through trials of any kind, much less trials of various kinds. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can trust God knows what he's doing. And even though you may not see it or understand it today or in your season, God does. And may you be like Job when he's in the midst of his darkness and says, everywhere I look, front of me, behind me, to the left, to the right, all I see is, is darkness. I don't feel God. I don't see God. But I know he's there. And he's going to pull me out so that I will become like gold. You can translate that to be more like Christ. That's God's plan for you. Is there any greater plan? So let us count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because they will come. But God knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that we don't like the various trials that we have in our lives, but we praise you and give thanksgiving that you are in total control, and we can cast ourselves upon you and trust you. And we know that at the finish line, what we will find about ourselves is that you will make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So grant us through these trials endurance, steadfastness, that we may grow in our faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now stand to receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ
The love of the Father and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.